Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. is a production of Dirty Mo Media. There he is. Come on in here, buddy. Have a seat. Hey, everybody. Glad you tuned in. It's time for another episode of the Dale Jr. Download. Mike Davis, Dale and Hart Jr. In the Bojangle Studio. We've got a great guest today. Well, how, how you doing, Red? I'm doing fine right now. This They're is every like... week, okay, bud? <laughs> Buckle in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you died on that hill. Yep. You, your career died on that hill, and you were hard-headed. You're a bigger idiot. I didn't even think about it. No. You thought about it and didn't ask That it. makes me the bigger idiot. I think so. <laughs> Hey everybody, it's Dale Jr. Welcome back to another episode of the Dale Jr. Download here in the Bojangles studio with my co-host Mike Davis. Mike, how you doing? I'm doing well, buddy. Well, we talked about it yesterday uh, for our, our Tuesday show. We got a great guest today. This is absolutely uh, the perfect uh, guest for, for our sponsor, Ally. That's right. Um, Ally will be bringing us our guest segment today and I um, want to thank Ally for everything they do. Um, in NASCAR and everything they do for us here at Dirty Mo Media Ally, they do it right. Um, and we have an ally coming in. Hank Parker Sr. will be our guest today. Hank Parker Sr. Uh, made his fortune and his celebrity as a uh, bass, uh, professional bass fisherman, and um, even more so probably as the host of his own television show. That's right. You know, all through the 80s and uh, the 90s, uh, his show was quite popular, and he had a great friendship with my dad. And um, we've had Hank Jr. on this show, who I'm very close to, uh, and that really has sparked the uh, interest in getting getting Senior here and talking to him. Uh, he's a busy guy, hard to really nail down, but we're lucky that he's going to come in here today and talk to us about his uh, friendship with Dad, but also I'm curious about how you become a champion professional bass fisherman right and then and then carry that to television which is where i was introduced to him at a young age and that is his television persona he has this amazing personality that's just you know you gravitate towards and then pivot uh one of the most incredible pivots uh in life to become a professional race car driver exactly like how do you how does one do that we need to figure that out he's going to be coming in here let's go ahead and welcome hank barker senior on the dale jr download So Hank Parker, Sr., 
Hank how, Parker. How long has it been since I seen you? Man, it's been forever. Yeah. Uh, probably 20 years. <laughs> has it been that long? It probably has. Oh, my crazy. gosh. Yeah. It crazy. is crazy. It doesn't yeah. seem like it should have been that long. Yeah. So, um, Thanks for making some time for us. Oh, I'm excited. Coming yeah. today. You guys roasted me pretty good. That's my chance to get back. When? Oh, when Hank Jr. was here. <laughs> <laughs> he said, your dad was racing. What was he thinking? Well, I know it. Yeah. He's, but, he's uh, still wondering just I'm to go ahead. I'm still wondering what were you doing. I'm going to tell you. <laughs> Why were you doing hey, Yeah, I'm going to tell you what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. I – um. I always kind of been fascinated with your with your life and your career, and this is a great opportunity for us to to talk about it. Um, when did you start fishing professionally? What? Well, I started really. I tried uh, in 1975. I fished my first BASS tournament in 1975, and uh, I realized I was out of my league. I wasn't ready, and it was at Santee Cooper, which is a lake that I'd was real familiar yeah. with and uh, i went down and conditions changed and i wasn't able to adapt to the conditions what do you mean well the water got muddy in the area that i was fishing in the river yeah and so i had to come back down in the lake and i really didn't know how to transition from what i had planned on doing uh and the weather through the curve and I wasn't able to adapt. Yeah. And I watched these guys. Old Glenn Wells from Greenbrier, Tennessee, was about 55 years old at the time. And I was 20 years old. And uh, I watched how he handled the situation. I drew him as a partner. And I realized I was not in his league. Yeah. Mm. I didn't know how to fish the lures that he fished. I didn't understand a lot. So I went home uh, and the tail between my legs and uh, – Started practicing. I worked on Lake Wiley. I ran a marina on Lake Wiley. You did? Yeah. I worked for a guy named Mike Hovis who owned Seven Oaks Marina. Mm -hmm. And so I worked for him. And I would fish in the mornings, the days that I worked from noon till closing time. And then the the, the times that I, I, uh, uh, I worked from morning till noon, then I fished in the afternoon. I fished every day. And I fished baits that I never fished before. And I learned how to adapt. And I learned how certain baits work that I didn't know before. Yeah. Then when I went back in 1976, I started. That's, so that's when my career really started. So why uh, were you going to make, was it reasonable to think about making a living fishing competitively? I thought so. Yeah. It, at the time, it was... Uh, a few guys doing it, but not a whole lot. Yeah. But Bill Dance was doing really well. Roland Martin was doing well. And I, I just felt like that the the door was open and I was going to go for it. Yeah. And so where, where – you grew up on a lake. You grew up fishing your family. What was your connection? You know, my dad really, he liked to fish with a fly rod, but I didn't. I just got fascinated the very first time I ever went to the lake – uh, it just fascinated me. I just fell in love, and it was just watching a bobber uh, go under. I mean, it was a thrill like uh, <laughs> driving in the uh, turn two in Atlanta. I yeah. mean, it was just crazy. So you grew up around this, and you worked at the marina. Um, what was the uh, commitment? What was the commitment like to go fishing? And were you were you in a relationship? Are you married yet? 
I at did. This point. I got got married in 1973. Started fishing in 1976. So I had kids already. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, because yeah, hey, Junior was born in '74. Yeah. So, yeah. what is? Are you taking? Is this a financial risk? Are you? Because you? What if you don't? I, I borrowed ten thousand dollars on a ninety-day note at the Northwestern Bank in Maiden, North Carolina, and started fishing. And how'd that go? <laughs> well, there's no people, you know, we'd be fishing a tournament and we'd be down there around bottom money. They'd pay like 40 places. So I'd be in like 38th place. And we'd be fishing in New York and you have to cross Lake Ontario in five foot waves and risk your life. And the guy sitting around uh, the campfire in the afternoon said, I'm not going, I'm not going to go across that lake for a 40. 40th place check uh, what are you gonna do i said i'm going yeah did you already <laughs> i got a bank note to pay I'm, I'm going so you already had a boat i'm assuming right i did so that yeah. ten thousand dollar loan you it was basically to enter into tournaments that's right is that the, right. the gist of what you're spending is yeah that's right and paying you're trying to make it back fees, yeah paying entry fees and all the expenses you know yeah. Um, yeah yeah you gotta you gotta be able to make that money back then so oh, yeah uh, you gotta make that note payment <laughs> did you make it oh yeah you there's no it. motivator like poverty <laughs> i mean it yeah. will get you on your toes fair enough <laughs> yep. so it was really good for me that, that i was in a good position you know schrader said one time kenny schrader said one time and your dad was in that same league uh you, you didn't really sit down and plan out a financial plan on what I'm going to achieve. Mm-hmm. You would have paid to race. Bill oh, Senior, yeah. yeah if, if NASCAR said, okay, I'm going to let you boys come race, but you're going to you're gonna have to come up 15000 bucks. They'd have figured out a way to come up with it. Yeah. <laughs> so it wasn't some master plan. Dale Earnhardt never sat down and thought, one day I'm going to be a, a multimillionaire as a race car driver. Yeah. And Dale Earnhardt thought, how am I going to get that next set of tires? That's right. <laughs> you know, that was the whole deal. And so you're doing, are you basically doing this uh, out of pure love for, the you know, you were thinking, man, I'm going to be able to make a living doing the one thing that makes me the happiest. Yeah, that's exactly. I, that That was my whole goal in life. I love to fish. I'm going to make it happen, and uh, we'll see where it goes, you know, yeah. financially I never dreamt the sport would grow like it grew mm. and that the money would be available that's available. Yeah. And uh, it just was way better than I ever dreamt. But So uh, talk about that. How big was uh, the – how big was the bass organization and the tournaments? How big were they when you started? How much did it change? <laughs> you know, it's really crazy. And uh, I'm thinking the first year your dad won the championship, I won the Bassmaster Classic. I think 79 maybe. Yeah, and uh, 80. I had more notoriety than he did. Yeah. I mean, really and truly, I had him as a guest on the show to promote the fact that uh, he's a NASCAR champion. (laughs) Yeah. And so it's amazing when you you put the two sports together. Fishing has grown immensely, but not in the league with what NASCAR did. Between 79 and 99, NASCAR just exploded. So how good were you out of the gate? Like you're saying 76 was your first full – effort at i won the championship in national bass my first year really and uh, so like all right so you talk about you know not being good enough at 20 years old not knowing what you need to know you go back home and you study and you learn everything you need to learn and then how do you come in and just rock 
how do you come in and just beat all those other guys so quickly? A year it, later, right? It's a mindset, and uh, I, I I just uh, prepared, and uh, I had a lot of confidence. Yeah. And uh, I never worried. Everybody talks about when you walk in a room and you look around, and there's Bill Dance, and there's Billy Westmoreland, and there's all these legends of the sport, and you're going to draw, and there you are from North Carolina and these people from all over the country, and they've had all this success. How intimidating is that? That never intimidated me. Really? Mm. Never intimidated me at all. Uh, I got to catch the most fish. And I'm not worried. I, and, and people, the, the difference between NASCAR and, and pro football. Football, you got an opponent. Uh, and, and I know a lot of organizations, ESPN, they, they want to make it like it's a battle between Ernie Irwin and Dale Earnhardt or – the intimidator against Rusty Wallace or whomever, you really race the racetrack. Mm. And if you beat the racetrack and you turn the best times, you win the race. And it really doesn't have anything to do. Now, you do get into some scuffles. In fishing, none of that happens. In fishing, it's strictly beat the lake. You go out there and catch the most fish, and you're going to win. I never beat Roland Martin. I never beat Bill Dance. I never beat anyone. I just caught the most fish, so I won the tournament. But it was – it, it, and that was my mindset from the beginning. I never worried about this guy or that guy because it didn't matter. Yeah, it's whoever had the most fish, and somebody's going to win. It might as well be me. Yeah. How many tournaments does one have to enter just to be competitive? Com, com, yeah, to be contending for a championship. Yeah, yeah that, that's a great question. In the old days, uh, they had uh, six tournaments. Uh, you fish six tournaments, and uh, then the Bassmaster Classic. And then it, 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 uh, it evolved into eight tournaments and eventually uh, 12 tournaments, and it got bigger and bigger and more and more. But when I first started, you only had six tournaments. Wow. So You only had to uh, – there were six, and those six you had to be at. You, you had not, to – oh, you yeah, could you not could miss not miss one. No. And so how do you – so the Bassmaster Championship, um, what makes you eligible to – is that like, you know – Certain members, certain winners from each tournament get elected it's a to the point system. Right, it's a point system. It's a so, point system. Okay, so who all gets to go to the Bassmaster Championship? Okay, you had 250 competitors. Yep. And for each place you you fished, if you won, you got so many points, and then it it was prorated all the way down to to the bottom 250th guy, and so you accumulated points. And so 25 out of uh, the top 250, oh. 25 got to go to the championship. Damn. Mm. How many times did you go? Every year? Every year. I never it's, missed. And you never missed. And I'm so how many to. bass championships did you win? I won two world titles. I was the first guy to ever win everything, which is a, a qualifying tournament, uh, Bass Angler of the Year, a Super Bass Tournament, which was their big money tournament, and the Bassmaster Classic. I was yeah. the first guy to ever do that. When did you decide that you wanted to like? So I want to tell you, your your personality is second to none. Like you are a fun guy to talk to, be around. I remember uh, when I was much younger how entertaining it was <laughs> to be in the same room with you, and so especially with you and Hank Jr. and how you used to razz him and give him a hard time. <laughs> but um, when did it dawn? When did it sort of click that you could turn this into? You could become a television personality in your show, right? Your sh- a lot of people remember you from that show and still today talk about it. Um, you still create content around that. So when did that start and how 
how much sense did that make to you at the beginning, right? Were you like, oh, man, this is a natural. This makes, you know, you were other people doing this? Uh, well, you know, the fishing world was completely different than anything, any other sports world, because you really didn't have, uh, you didn't have enough prize money to make it, much like racing. You know, you got to have sponsors, yeah. and uh, or you're not going to make it on prize money. So, in 1979, I won the Bassmaster Classic. I had no earthly idea what that meant. It was $25,000 first place. $25,000 was a lot of money in 1979, especially to me. But uh, I had no earthly idea what the opportunities were going to be with that title. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And as I started getting uh, opportunities and realized how much money you could literally make through endorsements and uh, promotions and opportunities, then I saw the light. Yeah. And I said, man, this thing can be pretty lucrative. And so as time went on, I just basically realized that the more publicity I get, the more influence I got on a consumer about buying my product. If I say, hey, I'm Hank Parker, well, they got to know who Hank Parker is. And I recommend you buy this lure. And the more notoriety I have, the more opportunity I have to to make money off of that endorsement. Well, as time went on, I kind of exhausted all my relationships with people with magazines and newspapers. I'd come up with all these ideas for articles. Well, you can only do that for so long. So then I thought, well, if I'm going to make more money and I'm going to grow, then I'm going to have to be in control of my own destiny as far as as publicity. Mm -hmm. So... I gravitated to television, not having a clue what I was doing. Yeah, but uh, how'd you do it then? Because I mean, like everybody thinks they're gonna, they could be on TV, whether it's hunting or fishing. But you ended up on a, a, a getting a TV deal. How do you do it? Well, you know, it's it it really took money, and it 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 took a big risk on my part. Everything that I'd ever earned or made in my whole life, I I, I put at risk because you had to personally buy the airtime. Then you had to produce your own show. And so it it was a big step. And at that time, you know, we look at these little cameras today that has high resolution that can do 4K and you can buy one for $4,000. Well, the broadcast uh, networks required you to have an Ikigami 79 camera, which cost 100 grand. (laughs) And then you had to have a recorder. There was no, there were no, mics everything was hardwired there wasn't any uh of course yeah everything was hardwired yeah and so you you had wires running up your britches legs and a guy with a mixer in the back of your boat you know it was a bit and so you had to buy all of that stuff and so it was about a four hundred thousand dollar investment to get the equipment to edit and uh to to video and then you had to buy it by your airtime so we bartered our airtime. We bought mostly from NBC and uh, CBS and uh, network stations, and we bought different markets around the country. So we did it different from everybody else. And um, that's that, we made that it blows work. my mind. I know it because I, that that right there is an investment. Now, at what point then? You talked about the endorsements. I would have to assume then you are now uh, attractive to other endorsers. You've got your own television show. Who cares how you had to get it? You got it. And so did that open up to where it started paying for itself? And then people started, rather than you having to buy airtime, well, they started, it, you started selling? <laughs> I, I had no idea how any of that worked, you know. And so it's all based on cost per thousand, CPM. And, to this day. Uh, yeah, and I'm, day. I'm trying to think, what in the world is all of this, you know? And I, I've got 
boat sponsors. I've got Ranger Boats. I've got Mercury Outboards. And I've got all these indemnant companies. But then we are having people like Chevrolet and other companies start to inquire about, uh, hey, we'd like to sponsor your show, and we'll pay you this based on your delivery. And I said, well, how do you determine that? Well, your our CPM cost is twenty-seven fifty per thousandth, and you're our demographics, and that's what the value is. And so I'm so I got a lot of lessons. It was, it was a learning <laughs> process. For me. I jumped in and had no earthly idea. And it, somehow it just all worked out. <laughs> Holy moly, that blows my mind, right? Yeah, so this is so Hank Parker's Outdoor Magazine on TNN in 1985. You had Michael Runnels. Um, who was Michael? Michael was a guy that was a technical guy for Humminbird who had a degree in uh, marketing, and he understood how it all came together, yep. and so I got – hooked up with him and he did all the administrative stuff see i was still competing yeah and so i'm never you know this more than anybody else there's so much business behind the scenes in nascar but that don't matter when you put that helmet on you can forget all of that it's about that racetrack and that moment yeah well i've got all this business to run i've got all these sponsors i've got all this airtime i've got all these demands on getting shows ready and delivered to certain networks at certain times and all that stuff is just a big distraction because i got to go fish lake toho next week yeah and I, so I need to have my mind cleared where I don't worry about anything. And I did. I separated my business totally. So I had to have a person that could handle yeah. all that. So your show was famous for having a lot of celebrities that were not in the fishing world, right? And yep. so who yep. were some of the, I guess, you know, Dad was probably uh, a blast. But who were some of the celebrities that you would have on there that was that maybe had no idea what they were doing? Well, I won't say they had no idea, but my biggest celebrity ever is uh, uh, when Bo Jackson played uh, two sports. He was the first guy to ever get that notoriety and uh, pull that off. And so Nike was running commercials all over television, Bono's, Bono's, and it it was a huge deal. So I'm sitting in my office one day, and everybody's gone. It's probably 5.30 afternoon. The phone rings, and it's Bo. (laughs) And uh, he asked for Hank Parker. And I thought it was a joke. Yeah. I, I didn't know who in the world was calling me, <laughs> pretending to be Bo Jackson. But he said, hey, man, I'm going to go fishing with you. And uh, it, it worked out. It was just so awesome. And he was playing at that time for the Kansas City Royals. And uh, he had a week off, uh, uh, played a doubleheader like on a Tuesday. So the next Wednesday he was off. I was going to, to Oklahoma to fish on the Verdigree River. So I invited him to come. He did. And and we did a show, and uh, Bo was the coolest guy. I mean, it was just were, amazing. Were those type of people calling you all the time? Hey, I want to go fishing with you. We had quite a few, but, you know, I fished with a lot of football coaches. I fished with Tony Dungy. I've, uh, I've, I fished with uh, Randy White of the Cowboys. Uh, I fished with Larry Bird. Bird was a cool, wow. cool guy. Yeah, hey, I bet that was awesome. With. Yeah, he, he was cool. So. Yeah. How many times did you have Dad on? We probably fished together about 10 times, and we did about four shows together. Really? One That's of, so cool. One of my favorite, I have to tell this on him. He, uh, <laughs> You know, today, if if you were still racing, and you or Jimmy Johnson, let's just pick on Jimmy. If Jimmy was racing and he, he fell out of the race and the, the, all the media was there sticking microphones in his face, hey, Jimmy, what happened? He said, well, you know, we had uh, – we broke a valve spring, and uh, uh, so we were limping around, and we were just trying to get those points that are so important, and we finally broke a crank, and it took us out of the race.
face, he'd give you that explanation. You stick that microphone in, in Dale's face, and he'd say, blowed up. <laughs> yeah. And he'd look at you like he had two heads. Yeah. But what do you mean what happened? We were just talking about yeah. that, how yeah. he would do. You could uh, tell that, when he was pissed, oh, and he, yeah. he'd just oh, say yeah. a few words. Oh, yeah. yeah. He's going to tell you right quick. So I was doing a show out at his uh, out at the farm, and Taylor and my daughter Lucy, they were fishing for catfish, and uh, Dale and I were sitting up there watching. And uh, Taylor hung a catfish, and she had a little Mickey Mouse rod and reel, and it was more than Mickey could bear. And, uh, <laughs> they were little ears laying all over the pond dam, and, and Earnhardt looks over at her and says, Taylor, what happened? And she pooks that little lip out, and she looked at him with them little beady eyes and said, Blowed up. <laughs> End of story. That is hilarious. I mean, the apple don't fall far from the tree. <laughs> Perfect, man. Football is back in full swing with another week of epic games. And who's got you covered on the action for every single one of them? DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. New customers can bet $5 on football and get 2 $100 instantly in bonus bets. Nobody's missing out on the action this season. All DraftKings customers can take advantage of two new offers every single game day this September. Get in on the NFL Week 2 action with DraftKings Sportsbook. Download the app now and use code DALE to sign up. New customers can bet just $5 and take home 200 instantly in bonus bets. Only on DraftKings Sportsbook. With code DALE, the crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. For state-specific disclaimers, check the show notes. 21 plus in most eligible states, but age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details and state-specific responsible gambling resources. Bonus bets expire seven days after issuance. Eligibility, wagering, and deposit restrictions apply. See DKNG.co football for eligibility terms and responsible gambling resources. So you and Dad had a really good friendship. Oh, um, it was awesome. How did y'all meet? Do you know that you would have never had your late model car had it not been for me? Really? You would have never had it. Never had it. We were sitting on the porch at my farm. He and I had been hunting. And uh, he said, these kids, man, these kids want everything. He said, you know, when I was growing up, Ralph Earnhardt said, if you want to race, get out there in the junkyard and get your stuff and put it together. And he said, I'm telling my kids the same thing. If they want to race, I said, but Dale, let me tell you something. When Ralph Hernhart told you to get out in the junkyard and get your stuff and put it together and go racing, that's what he was doing. He was doing that. He was winning races. He wasn't driving for Richard Childers flying on the King Air and had a whole stable full of race cars. <laughs> yeah. And I said, it reminds me of a guy that uh, grew up poor. and He's a farmer, and he brings his little boy in the store, and he buys himself a Pepsi. He don't buy one for that little boy. And he sits over and drinks that Pepsi, and that little boy just looks at him and, lusting after that pepsi but he don't buy him one yeah. i said that's what you're doing to your kids and i said you got it <laughs> boy he looked at me and for 10 solid minutes he never said a word uh, it seemed like two hours yeah but for 10 minutes he never said a word next wow. thing i know he bought them all cars fell around <laughs> holler and you, you were yeah. the beneficiary of a little talk we had on the porch <laughs> at the farm in south carolina that's hilarious <laughs> Holy crap, man. That is so good. What a great analogy, by the way. I know. It's true. Just dangling in front of the kids, right? Well, he bought them the cars, and from what he told me, he said, uh, now you're on your own. You tear them up, you got to fix them. Yeah, that was true. (laughs) He did that, right? (laughs) So when did you and him uh, become friends? 
he was racing dirt at Metrolina. Daggum, way back then. Yep, and uh, Donnie Reeves. Yep. And uh, everybody said, you know, he likes to hunt. You need to hook up with him and take him hunting. Well, he was hunting with at a place in Chester, South Carolina. Mm-hmm. And I hunted with an old uh, guy named Franco Hill, who was a nut. Uh, made the movie Stroker Ace. He was dad's secret yes. Stroker Ace. Yeah. And Franco was just a comedian. Made jewelry out of quail droppings. Yes, you know, I remember uh, that. Oh, he yes. told that story yes. when Hank Jr. was here. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, Dale, I, I got him to go down to Franco's. That's where you killed your first deer, yes. by the way, on, on Franco's property. Mm-hmm. And so uh, he started hunting with me. And I'm going to tell you something about Dale Earnhardt Sr. that a lot of people didn't know. He was as good an outdoorsman as there was in the world. Uh, he was as good a deer hunter, the best tracker I've ever seen. I, I'm 70 years old now. I've hunted with thousands of people. I've tracked deer with hundreds of people, and no one could track a deer like Dale Earnhardt. What no you, one. What do you mean by that? He could see this little bitty speck of blood. He had an instinct for where that deer went, and he could just stay in one position, never go out in front and get ahead of himself, and rustle up the leaves. He would stay back, and he'd get really aggravated. If anybody knows anything about Dale Earnhardt, he ran everything. Yeah, he was in charge. He was in charge. (laughs) So you follow him. Don't you get out in front of him. But he was patient, and you'd think he wouldn't be. Of anybody, the first time I ever took him hunting, he stayed in a tree all day long. I know it. I could not believe that. I know it. Yep. It just like didn't get out at lunchtime. Did not get out. No, went in that tree before daylight and got down in the dark. And it was amazing. And that's that before blew these my pen, mind. That's before these penthouse tree stands and everything. Oh yeah, no, this is on a little ladder stand that's sure. hardly big enough to get your hind end on, and right. he sits there all day long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, that amazed me. But the, he had that same patience in tracking, and he just had this tremendous instinct. It, it was he was really really advanced in hunting. Yeah, Hank Jr.'s the sa- or not Hank Jr., but uh, um, Martin Truex Jr. will do that. He'll get in the stand in the morning and not come out. <laughs> and I'm like, all right. I mean, I don't know. I got to get a sandwich. <laughs> but I, he uh, he would, you know. And I, I'm not telling you anything. You 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 know with the time commitment it takes to be great at anything. But uh, man, when season started, he was gone. Um, and you know, Teresa was pretty stern and tough and, and she had things she expected and depended on out of the relationship and the marriage. But dad, when that season started to the end of deer season, if he wanted to be in a stand, he was going to go be in a stand. Um, she, she didn't like me at all. Uh, <laughs> I was uh, I was not uh, one of Teresa Earnhardt's fans. Yeah, I can tell you that. because so, you were the oh, one yeah, taking hunting. We were gone all the time. <laughs> we got a deer lease in Texas together, and uh, I, we had that deer lease. What was in Cineo Ranch? It Where was, was it? Uh, Piloncia. Piloncia. Yeah, it was right out of Catula, Texas. Uh-huh. And uh, he and I had that ranch for uh, from 1986 until he passed away. Mm-hmm. And two months before he died, he and I sat by a campfire, and uh, we did a handshake deal. We had not been going together. He would always like to go right after the cup banquet. And I would always like to go. So that was around December 10th or somewhere in that neighborhood. And I'd always like to go in January, go right after Christmas. And he didn't like that. So we ended up not hunting 
together as much. Yeah. And so he had invited me that same year to go to Silver City, New Mexico, and elk hunt with him. So we'd spent the time up there. So he said, hey, we're going to the Piloncia together this year. So he went when I went in January. So two months before he died, I did a handshake deal that I would never go back to the ranch without him, and he would never go back without me. Yeah. So I left a truck. I left deer stands. As far as I know, he left the old Suburban at the Catula <laughs> Airport, and 15 years after his death, uh, Gene Naquin asked me one day, he said, is anybody ever going to come get that old Suburban? <laughs> I said, probably not. Wow. You left it. It's we all there. It. You kept your word. Yeah, I never went back. That's Holy an amazing story. Yeah, never went back. My gosh. Wow. If you if we could go back for a second, you were talking about you met him when he was running dirt at Metrolina. So this would have been about mid seventies. Yeah, late seventies. Right? Late seventies. Is it late seventies? Mm-hmm. The second half of the seventies, probably. I yeah, mean, probably it, in the middle. Probably really? seventy five. Probably right. seventy four. So Man, this I mean, he is a punk. <laughs> like he's just a kid. Oh, I was. Yeah. You're you're a oh. you're a new dad, and he is a new dad. And oh yeah, no, I wasn't a dad then. Well, seventy four. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's probably maybe even before, before that. that? Yeah. Dang, he was young. Yeah. So you were just. Yeah, his even... dad was amazing. I mean, your grandpa was quite the Ralph. driver. And so everybody you remember Ralph? Him. You knew him? I didn't remember him well. I did not know him. I just knew him on the track. Yeah. You know, I watched him. I saw him race at Greenville and Pickens. And... So you're going to races back then? Oh, yeah, I love racing. racing. Oh, yeah, I was a big Kelly Arbor fan. Really? Was, oh, yeah. My, okay. my dad loved racing. We listened to it on the radio all the time. Okay. You know, and I was just a big, uh, basically, I was a junior. Junior Johnson fan first. You know, he ran number three. Yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, originally. Yeah, originally. Holly Farm uh, Chickens. Uh, that was my <laughs> driver, man. And then Kelly Arvo came along. And then uh, uh, Big E. <laughs> I, I guess the reason I ask is it's pretty fascinating. They they met and became friends before either of them were Big. famous or, yeah. or successful. Oh, yeah. And then how cool would it have been for you to watch him become a NASCAR champion and then like, and vice versa – you become a Bassmaster champion, right? Yeah, you become a world right. champion, and that had to be like amazing for each of you to watch each we, other's progression. We never even thought about it. Really? That's amazing. You know, that was never discussed. Yeah. When he won his first championship, he bought Neil Bonnet a 742 Remington shotgun with the, I mean, rifle with a Weaver scope on it. And he thought that was a big deal, man. <laughs> <laughs> that was a big yeah. deal. Yeah. Like, I've, I've hit the big time now. I buy a brand new rifle with a scope. <laughs> Wow. So, you, go ahead, Deb. Well, so one of the things I wanted to ask you about is um, you won the uh, World Championship in 1989 and then retire. You're 37 years old. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what it's – I don't know about the fishing world, but I'll, I do know about, the, you know, the racing world. And um, driver retirement is a – you know, a, it's a really – particular moment right and a driver doesn't want to retire when he feels like he's got a little left in the tank right you want to get it all out rusty wallace talks about it today he's uh-huh. like man i might have just done it a little too soon i wish i'd have done it a different way um <clears throat> and i wonder like you know that competitive atmosphere i know that you had lucrative things going on i know you talk about it you were, your calendar day was slam full of responsibilities but you did have to walk away from that competition and that that draw of trying to be the best, right? You did that at 37 years old, on top of the world. Why? Hank Jr. and Billy and Ben had started racing go-karts. 
and I got them into that. Yep. And we had a little track at the house, and we absolutely loved it. And so every weekend, Hank Jr. would say, Dad, can we, can we go racing this weekend? Can, can we go to the go-kart track? No, son, I'm not going to be here. I'm not going to be here. Dad, I, 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 you know, on and on and on. And it was the hardest thing that I ever did is walk out of my house and get in my car and drive to the airport or drive, hook up to my boat and go to a lake, knowing that I had little boys that couldn't do what they wanted to do because their dad wasn't home. Yeah. And uh, I cared a lot more about being a dad than I did a professional fisherman. And I told myself, and, and, and I told my wife at the time, if I ever get to the point financially that I can be free, uh, I'll retire. Mm-hmm. And I knew what that meant because I'd won it 10 years earlier, and I knew what kind of revenue, and I was more positioned to capitalize now than I was then. you know. Yeah. So I knew financially I could do it. And uh, I never hesitated. I, right. I, I said, I'm done. I'm going home and raise my kids. Did you miss the competition? Oh, I about died. I had to go to every single Bassmaster Classic after I won, after I retired, because I had sponsor obligations. (laughs) It was the hardest thing I've ever done is sit in that crowd. And I was at the peak. Man, I I was better a year after I retired than I was, and I had won two tournaments the year that I I retired, you know, and, and I'm sitting there thinking, golly, well, that, that was hard. Yeah. So after you retired, you still fished competitively somewhat? No. Minimally? No, no not at no, all. You were no, done. No, I quit. You continued the show, the I television show. I put it all into the show. All into the show. Yeah. All right. So why did your boys not want to go into professional fishing? <laughs> you know, I don't know. Uh, I was pretty hard on them. Uh I thought uh, when you when you went fishing, you got one pack of cheese crackers and one Coke, and you started at daylight and you quit at dark, and you saw how many casts you could make every hour. And uh, so when I took them when we were kids, I probably burned them out really bad. <laughs> starved them, too. <laughs> starved them to yeah. death, yeah. They wanted They didn't die of dehydration. Dad, I'm know. hungry. Oh, yeah. uh, Did I didn't, eat, eat I didn't really know how to separate that. You know, I'm a better grandpa, I can promise you that. <laughs> I wasn't real good then. Yeah. So they didn't want any part of it, that's <laughs> what you're saying. And why, so is that maybe why racing seemed to be more uh, interesting to them is because – you all would be gaining the experience together, right? You weren't an expert in autumn, you know, in racing, right? So was that maybe why that was a better experience for them to be racing and you helping them get involved? I think anybody that is aggressive in nature that gets in a race car of any kind is going to get hooked on yeah. it. It is an adrenaline rush like nothing else that I've ever done. Right. I, I've done a lot of things, and I've had some exciting moments. But there is nothing like driving a race car. Right. It is the most adrenaline <laughs> fix that there is. And yeah. so it's extremely addictive. And my kids are just like, I, I think you take any kid in the world. And if they've got a competitive nature and they're aggressive and you put them in a race car, <laughs> and that's going to be their ambition for life. I'm a very race car driver. When did you drive a race car for the first time? Oh, man. Well, we started in go-karts, and that was probably— And you it. ran? Yeah, I ran. We, you I raced race go-karts? Karts. Yeah, I raced go-karts. And, uh, Where? I, I How old were you? I was uh, probably 33, 34. Yeah. Yeah. 
Driving yeah. in the master's class. Probably. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Where does we thirty-three-year-olds get to get to run go karts? We raced Millbridge, and there was a place wow. right there in Denver, and uh, it's amazing. Caraway. There were, there were a lot of dirt, uh, little dirt racetracks that yeah. we went to a lot of them. So you ran a lot of dirt go karts, and then what? What I want to bridge that to this to this NASCAR Bush deal. You well, did. the 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 way all this whole racing is back on that front porch where I told Dale Earnhardt that uh, he he was depriving you guys of of having an opportunity, and uh, he decided he's going to get y'all some towns and cars. Was yes, it? Yeah. Was. And uh, back on that same front porch, and uh, you were there. And uh, I got to tell a story. You, 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 you and Hank Jr. were pretty rough on me, so I'm gonna get rough on you. I, I have. I imagine what this is about. <laughs> well, I, I got to tell hilarious. it. But, but anyway, it was on that front porch that you somehow your dad and my son came up with your old orange late model car, your yeah. old street stock car, yeah. and that's where. I, Dad, uh, y'all bought that car. Unbeknownst to me. me. (laughs) He called me on Monday. He said, have you got a car hauler? I said, a what? He said, a trailer. If you got a trailer, they'll put a car on. I said, well, I got a farm trailer. I have my tractors on. He said, well, bring it over here and bring me a check for I don't know how much money it was. I said, for what? He said, you'll see this. Come on. So that's what I ended up with. (laughs) That was the beginning of, uh, of Hank's racing career. Of Hank's and mine as well. And yours. Too. I'm not going to let You got a street stock, stock too. Oh, yeah. I got me a street stock car. Yeah. yeah. I remember now. Yeah. Hank Jr. So I took that. I had built this car. I, that car, I loved it. It was a great little car. I raced it a lot. And um, the last race I run in it, 200 lapper on New Year's <laughs> Eve. And I'm leading with like 30 to go. And I busted the spider gears. Used to weld them oh, up. Oh, yeah. I welded them yeah. up, obviously, and they busted out. But Blowed the up. damn car was a good car. <laughs> he takes it. I think Hank Jr. won a handful of races with it. He did. He did a great job. He did. He, he ended up rolling it on the back straightaway. <laughs> Concord. Yes. Yeah, that's right. What a great racetrack that was, was. and how awesome it was. What happened to that, that car? What happened to that car? Yeah. I ended it when he rolled I know. it. Yeah, Did that, you put it behind a shop or is it over in the junkyard somewhere? Yeah. I think somebody, Jim Cook or somebody, wanted it to um, to strip it for some parts that yeah. was on it. So oh, I man. think that's we where it find went. that thing. That'd be cool. <laughs> um, so when um, you said you were going to tell a story on me on that yeah. front porch. Yeah. Do you, yeah. What was it? Yeah. We've gone hunting. And uh, so Dale Sr. says uh, – I, I, he said, where's Junior going to hunt? I said, he's going to hunt with you. He said, ain't hunting with me. He's going to hunt with you. I said, okay, I'll take it. So I put Dale Junior over here in a tree, and uh, I said, now, if you have any problems, I'm going to just go climb a tree over here and just wave, and I'll, I'll come to you if you, you have any problems. Well, I didn't even get to my tree stand. He's walking about across the field. He's got his gun, and it's a bolt action, this. and he's beating on that bolt. And I'm saying, whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait a minute. He's beating on the bolt. He won't stop. And so I finally get to him, and I said, hold on. What's right? He said, I can't get the bullet in this gun. I said, well, hold on. Let me see it. And I said, Dale, he's already one in there. <laughs> <laughs> so what did he blow himself yeah, up? Man? Right. <laughs> Got that thing just going all over <laughs> So now he said when I was racing, what was I thinking? What was you what thinking? You thinking? Yeah. <laughs> I will tell you, too. We were um, – we, we were um, we were out on the front porch of that hunting uh, property – 
and I don't y'all were inside and me and Hank Jr. sitting out there and <clears throat> somehow or another I'd got a hold of a box of matches <laughs> or a or, or a booklet of matches and we I was sitting there lighting these matches just because uh, they smelled good or whatever right I'm just piddling we'd been kicking around ant heels and all kinds of stuff right and uh <clears throat> we had it was like 10 minutes later Dad comes outside on the porch, opens the door, and he goes, the hell y'all been burning? <laughs> I, uh, Me and Hank were like, well, you get scared to death, like freaking out scared. And I can't lie, right? You you, you get caught in a lie, you're in big trouble. So yeah. I'm like, I was, I just playing with these matches here. He's like, like, and he goes, you know, he went off angry about like, you gonna burn the whole dang club down. What are you playing with fire for? <laughs> that's a good question actually <laughs> and me he goes he finally goes back inside and me and hank sat there and we're like how in the heck did he know we did that because we couldn't smell it right like, right boy right. he he like he could smell he's tracking you from he could smell <laughs> that match from 10 minutes ago <laughs> right right and me and hank are sitting there going how in the world did he know we were doing that yeah or that i was doing that <laughs> and i thought man we are we're in big trouble, but uh, so y'all raced. Did you you race the street stock? And what was your Hank Junior? Obviously, uh, had some good success. What was your experience? Well, we raced street stock, and then we gravitated. He went to late model, and I went to super late model. <laughs> and uh, super late, I got to race against Jack Spragues yep. and Freddie Query and Rich Bickle and uh, some really cool guys. And uh, you know, they had open carburetors. You didn't have to, to be restricted. Yeah, you run whatever you want. So I ran a big 800 Dominator, and uh, <laughs> man, that thing was bad to the bone. Yeah. Yeah, it's on new tires, you could come out of, uh, you know, Concord didn't have a turn two. Yeah. Come out of one, you had, had that dog, dog leg. leg. Yeah, and then you went into three, and man, you could light it up. <laughs> it was a adrenaline rush like nothing. And I could out-qualify I remember I out-qualified them all one time. Spraggs was on the outside. I started on the pole. And uh, it was probably – Hank Jr. was way back. He was probably eighth or something. And uh, Toby Porter was there, uh, Bickle, yep. Freddie, uh, Jack, the whole nine Freddie yards. Freddie Query. And, yeah. yeah. Freddie Query helped y'all a, oh, yeah. a bit, yeah. especially yeah. Hank Jr. Yeah, he did. Yeah. yeah he, he went to work for us. And uh, I think I led ten feet – <laughs> Maybe 12, and Sprague's passed me going into one, and then Freddie, and then Bickle, and, <laughs> <laughs> and Toby. And, but uh, two laps later, Hank Jr. passed me, and when he passed me, he passed me. Uh, oh, he <laughs> waved at yeah, you. Yeah. He about, waved at you. About 15 laps later, he passed me again. He <laughs> waved at you again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, he waved at me about six times. Oh, about wow. 200 Dad laps. Gum. Yeah, it wasn't good. It wasn't good. <laughs> it wasn't good at all. Uh, <laughs> That's hilarious. All right, so I mean, I think we're all curious about how this ended up at, with the the Rockingham car, right? Yeah. So oh, yeah, that was cool. All right, so you end up buying? Did you buy a Bush car from Dad? You know, uh, I did. I did. Uh, we built a couple of Bush cars, and I and I bought a couple. Uh, your dad had bought a car off of uh, of Kenny Wallace. Uh -huh. Yep. Uh, the only Gr race, the gray only chassis, race that Dale Link. Earnhardt did not make in the bush series was at richmond yeah and uh his stuff uh his stuff was heavy yeah and uh 
Kenny Wallace had, had built this Bush car, and Dale knew if he was in that car, he'd have won the race easy. Mm-hmm. So he bought it. Yep. And I wanted it really bad. Yep. So I don't know what I paid for it. It was way too much, but I ended <laughs> up with it. And uh, it was really a cool car, and it was, uh, it was uh, like a three-quarter drop. You know, everybody's running a drop snout, yep. straight, and it was like a three-quarter drop. And um, so I wanted to race Rockingham. Rockingham is going to be your first bush race. That's going to be my first bush race. So mm-hmm. I'm gonna, I'm going to go race Rockingham. So uh, Buddy Baker was a great friend of mine, and uh, I got Buddy to go with me. And I had driven at Rockingham with his dad, Buck Baker's driving school. That's right. And I had, and they kept wooing me back. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they said, "Man, you 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 can't do that. You got to you got to slow down." So. Uh, I, I wanted to go, man. I, yeah. I really, it was an adrenaline rush. So I, I got Buddy, and Buddy got all the stats, who qualified on the pole and what the speeds were on the race the year before. And um, I went out there and made probably 400 laps. Mm. Went through about five sets of tires, spent about 20 grand out there that day, fooled around. But uh, I was fast enough to make the race. Buddy said, hey, you're going to make the race easy. All you got to do is – be cool don't don't drive in the three too hard that that's what's hurting you if you just slow down getting in the three you're gonna come off four you you're gonna make this race good yeah i mean you're gonna be in the middle of the pack and that's back when 50 and 60 cars were trying to make a 34 car field yeah so i felt pretty good about it and when i got out there and practiced i was decent and that was back in the days that you could run goodyear or hoosier Mm. and you made your choice well, Hoosier had a better tire. Faster, yeah. Yeah, they had a faster tire. So I was up there, you know, in the top 15 or 16 cars. And uh, uh, I did not understand how much you lose from new tires to three-lap old tires at Rockingham. Mm. I did not understand that at all. And so I tried to carry the same speed on three lap tires into the corner that I carried one lap or two lap tires. Yeah. And it is amazing. You know that way better than I do, how much those tires fall off at Rockingham. Yeah. And I had no idea. And Steve Grissom was taped up making a mock qualifying run. I didn't want to mess him up, so I tried to pinch that thing down in two and keep from hitting Grissom, buddy. And when it let go, I mean it let go. I hit the outside wall and then back on the inside wall, and I tore my little car up. So I didn't get to race. What would you do? And we packed her up. Your dad came to me. I was in the infield care center, and he said, boy, you better get your butt back to Concord before you get skinned up. <laughs> Is that the that's the one where Hank Jr. when he tells the story he he looked at you because he had I, I I remember him not necessarily roasting you I thought he was saying that you know no fear and you don't really feel pain but when he looked at you you were pretty you banged up a little bit in that wreck well, right uh, really I was way more banged up in a wreck at Concord than I was there I didn't okay. get I, my feelings were hurt more than anything but oh, I, I did get a, I did get a little blow there but it yeah. was uh, what so happened disappointing in, what happened in the wreck at Concord. Oh, man, that was a Big Ten race, and uh, I had my late model car, and we'd be going in carrying a lot of speed into three, and a guy named Dan Furr got under me and pushed me head on into the turn three wall, and Hank Jr. was leading the race. This was on lap probably 75, and Hank Jr. was leading the race. And uh, 
when he came by, the whole body was gone off my car. It wasn't mm. nothing but a cage. You know, we ran those fiberglass yeah. bodies, and the whole body came off, and uh, the whole top roll cage is, is uh, uh, mashed down to the steering wheel. Daggum. And Hank Jr. came by, and he, he told his spotter, he said, Boy, I don't know who that is, but I bet they're not all right. And uh, when he got back halfway back around, they said, that's your dad. <laughs> well, he's trying to stop on the racetrack and my radio, you know, I can't get to my helmet. All that stuff's torn off. So I finally, I motioned him to go on because he was going to stop on the racetrack. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was going to get out. But uh, he was leading the race. I didn't want to mess him <laughs> up. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he was, knew you were all right when yeah, you motioned yeah, him on. Yeah, Man, yeah. that would have been terrifying. Yeah, it was a terrible wreck. I mean, it was a bad-looking wreck. <laughs> Well, uh, you try, yeah, you try to make the race at Rockingham, Martinsville, Hickory. Hickory's tough. Yeah, Good grief. Yeah, um, yeah. I missed the race there <clears throat> in '97. Um, I had run a late model car a little bit at Hickory. Yeah, and uh, man, that Bush car was like an army tank. Yeah, and I hit my same lines that I did in a late model car, and oh my goodness, that thing went to the wall so fast. I mean, <laughs> it was like pushing like a it. freight train i did the same thing at myrtle beach i'd never ran a bush car right so we we're gonna go test at myrtle beach in 1996 uh to get ready to run that race and uh that year that same year my very first bush race and i go i mean you could carry that late model motor down into the corner on the throttle right wow all the way down into one and i first lap in this bush car i'm like i know the track grips there i go around three and four feels good down the front straight away i lifted maybe a car length before i lift on that late model just to be sure and i was way too far <laughs> down in there <laughs> right up to the turn one wall almost knocked the wall down i was like okay these things don't i'm, I'm going faster than i thought i was <laughs> it's heavier it don't stop it's nothing like when you're in the middle and you realize, well, I've drove her in too deep. Yes, now I'm I bet. a fair price. Yeah, <laughs> I bet. So, dad, was dad supportive in convincing you to continue to try this? No, he said you're an idiot. What are you doing? <laughs> really you're crazy? You better get that fishing rod, get back out of the lake. What are you doing? Really? When I bought the bush car from him, I have to tell this. We went to Martinsville, and uh, Richard and Leo Jackson had the track rented. And Harry Gant was there, and uh, and your dad was there, and it was that car that he had bought from uh, Kenny Wallace, and he had it painted up, and it was all three, and and so uh, they they ran for a good little bit, and and then uh, your dad kind of showed me the line, and so I went out there and I ran. In whose car? In dad's in the, car. The three. Oh wow! And you would never know it. Right. I mean, I'm in the three car. You know. Yeah. So. Uh, uh, Harry Gant was impressed. I was running some pretty good laps, and Harry Gant told Leo Jackson, he said, come out here and look at this fisherman run this car. <laughs> and so uh, I made a lap. Oh, Leo said, that ain't that fisherman. That's Earnhardt. And so the next lap, I spun out, and Leo said, yep, that's that fisherman. <laughs> <laughs> then we had some outdoor riders that were there, and they wanted to interview me. And uh, they said, now, are you going to run? Well, I'd already ran 15, 20 laps and spun out three times. I said, I don't know if I am or not. They said, yeah, we've never seen Earnhardt have so much trouble. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> he don't know this. He they never knew. I threw him under the bus. <laughs> <laughs> I said, yeah, it's kind of making me nervous. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, wow. You bought some cars from Darrell Waltrip. You bought ASA cars from him, all, an all-pro team, engines from Dad. Um, 
He had uh, Earnhardt, I mean, uh, Darrell had Western Auto over a sponsor him for whatever reason they wanted to cut back. He had a Bush team, ASA, and All Pro. I bought everything but his cup team. So I bought his Bush team, his ASA, and his All Pro. Yeah. And so you were going to run some, Junior was going to run some of this stuff. Neil Bonnet. Neil Bonnet was going to drive some of your car. Really? Yeah, he was our guy. You were going to own a car and And field it for Neil. Neil was going to drive it, yeah. And so what happens? We got everything ready and go down to Daytona, and he's driving James Finch's car. And uh, you had you had you had all your stuff there we that weekend to go, to go and we run the Xfinity go. race. Damn, I did not know that. Yeah, Neil. And so Neil lost his life. And so the very next year, uh, we set the rest of that year out. We didn't do anything. Didn't do nothing. And next year, I put David Bonnet because that was Neil's dream. Yeah. And so that was my obligation to Neil, if he would run our car, help us get some sponsors, uh, that he could share he and David. Yes. And then I was going to groom Hank Jr. I wanted to run a few races, and but I was going to groom Hank Jr. And, and you had Neil as a mentor, how awesome that was going to be. Yeah. And we had a great plan, and um, it all went away. I had no idea. It all went away. And, and the assumption but, here is just that Neil Bonnet, it, you become friends with Neil Bonnet through Dale. Dale oh, yeah. and, and y'all have been on hunting trips probably oh, yeah. together at that point. Yeah. So you and Neil, when, when do you think you met Neil? Because this is – this is something also I did not know. This had a, you said it out because that's a that's a that's a that's family that you just lost, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah. That that was devastating. That was, you know, you think of of Neil Bonnet, bigger than life. What a fun loving guy, mm. you know. And he had been through. He had had a wreck. Uh, uh, three years before and had some reservations about getting back in a car uh biggie helped him yeah regain confidence and uh it was just devastating It, it was the saddest devastating moment um other than big e's wreck at daytona that i've ever experienced it was just a really sickening sad situation of course it changed the whole direction of what we were doing and how we were doing it and what was going to happen i mean everything went away and uh, we set that year out and that particular year the budget to run bush was about a million dollars and so we go back the next year and it's like three million yeah and now the car count's gone from from 45 to 75 it's just crazy what happened and so everything in our whole life changed and it all centered around uh, losing neil i mean when i bought that team that that was a big part of of uh, what we were going to do yeah. you know you were going have a you mentor were, <clears throat> yeah and you were you were making had everything went the way you wanted it to go you would be an owner in nascar right yeah. oh yeah owning a full yeah. team and 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 man, I had no idea that you had that. You know, you had mapped this plan out that that was what was going to happen. Um, it's all trying to get ready for Hank Jr. Yeah, it was all trying to get ready for Hank Jr. and then Billy. You yeah. know, and and so I was just trying to be as prepared as I could be. And uh, you know, you look back and the way things work now, if, if you would have. T- 
taken your money and gone to Rick Hendrick or somebody and said, hey, you know, I'll sponsor my own kid's car. And, and yeah. it would have been a much better plan, but I didn't even know that was available. Right, right, right. You know, we're just trying to build what we had. Yeah. You would eventually do that, though, and you'd build a full team for Hank Jr., and y'all would manage it and run it. Um, and um, I'll say this. So Hank Jr. was really talented. He was. Uh, you know, he took that street stock car that I couldn't win with and him won races with it. He took uh, his own, you know, pro uh, all pro cars and, and won massive races. Knew everything about them, worked on them. I'd go in and talk to him about bleeders or you could run bleeders on his cars. And the things that he would tell me, I mean, you knew immediately, like this guy's on, he's touching every part of this car. He knows everything about it. I know you had um uh you had some help uh for some from some very smart people um in the business but they tutored and taught hank he was there working uh which was pretty fascinating he get he gets into the xfinity series driving that yellow 53 i know he had a couple other opportunities but <clears throat> that is y'all's deal y'all's cars and y'all would go almost one homestead almost one south boston Run third to me and Jeff Green. That was incredible. Um, I had so much fun racing and him leading and us bringing, us running together in 98 and 99 a little bit. Um, you know, I think uh, – did you – you know, when did you first, I guess, see true potential in Hank Jr.? I think it was Louisville, Kentucky. Uh I think it was Louisville, and uh, we walked the racetrack. And Les, I can't Lesterfield. The yeah, the, he runs a NASCAR all weekly series. series. He yeah. runs a weekly series now. Okay, he kind of. He's head over. He's head over like all the weekly NASCAR touring stuff. Okay, yeah. at that time he was he was the he was the director of the All Pro yeah. Series in NASCAR, and so he insisted that all the rookies get out and let's walk this racetrack. Mm -hmm. And uh, he said, guys, there's been three drivers here lost their life. This is a treacherous racetrack. When you come into turn four, you're coming downhill off of three. And this thing will put you in the wall at high speeds and you will lose your life. So rookies, listen to me. We're here to learn. We're not here to win. Get that out of your mind and follow and learn. This is going to be a learning experience for you. Don't absolutely don't think you're going to come up here and master this racetrack. This is a tough one. So we walked the track and walking downhill, and I, it's intimidating to me. And I told Hank Jr., I said, boy, this is crazy. Now, I hope you listen to, to Mr. Lesterfield. And he said, I'm here to win, Dad. Oh, <laughs> wow. I, I didn't like that. Wow. <laughs> I was spotting for him. And, uh, man, he burned that place up and we led the race and uh uh when he came into the pits with about 80 laps to go he ran over the air hose so that put him in the back of the field mm. actually put him a lap down mm. put him a lap down so under green he made his lap up and uh then the caution came out everybody else pitted uh except four cars and he didn't pit so he's running fourth and uh, with about 20 laps to go. So I'm watching, I'm spotting for him, and I'm watching the times, and I'm telling him, I said, if you don't mess with these lap cars, you can win this race. And uh, 
he came around and uh, and and passed. I'm trying to think of the guy. He had Slim Jim for a sponsor, but he was Mike Cope. Mike Cope. Mm-hmm. Mike Cope was leading the race, and uh, on the back stretch coming down to take the checker, he passed Cope on the outside and brought it through that downhill turn and won the race. Wow! And it was the most exciting thing I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. I thought, oh my goodness, this is crazy, but. Uh, it was uh, it was exciting, and then I realized, you know, this kid's actually a pretty good race car driver. Yeah, that would be a good but, indicator. That, that right yeah, there, that that yeah. would be the moment. Yeah, yeah, that was a, that was a good one. Yeah, <laughs> and that was fun. That was fun. He went to Salem, Indiana, a very intimidating racetrack, set on the pole. Uh, ended up winning the race, and uh, we just had some great races in the All Pro Series. Yeah, everything changed when we got in the Bush Series. I mean, because of the car count and because of all the pressure of all the money. Yeah, and, uh, but I'll say, um, when Hank Jr. did get into the Xfinity Series, you know, he overachieved. You know what I mean? I mean, he really did. I mean, it presented him opportunities. He would go on and land rides in the Xfinity Series and the Truck Series and have a have a pretty solid career. When you think back over Hank Jr.'s uh, career as a father, but also as someone who is heavily involved in his path, um, what what is your leading emotion? <laughs> it was good times. I don't regret any of it. I remember we were at a crunch time, and I'm doing the books. I'm sitting at my desk, and we're trying to get a sponsor. And I uh, just got the phone call that they were not going to get on board. And so Hank Jr. sitting there looking at that spreadsheet, and he said, Dad, if if we didn't get this sponsor, that means you've lost everything you've ever worked for your whole life. And I said, oh, no, 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 no. He said, you got more money? I said, no, <laughs> no. It doesn't mean I've lost everything I've worked for. It means I've spent everything I've worked for. There's a big <laughs> yeah. difference. There's a big difference. Yeah. I, I didn't feel like I lost it. I, I invested it for the right reasons for him yeah. and for my other boys. Yeah. And it just worked out that uh, we didn't make it. Yeah. And so we had to move on. But yeah. uh, So Billy uh, raced. So I talked to him one day. He's racing over at Hickory, winning a lot of races in a late-mile stock car. And he was uh, telling me about his barrel springs. And so back in the day, Mike, we were putting coilovers, running coilovers. And a barrel spring could do a little bit more traveling, and, and it was just a little smarter of a spring. And I was – I guess my point is is that – between Hank Jr. and Billy and their racing experience and their racing, uh, <clears throat> they were uh, more hands-on than you would think. Mm. More more into how how the car's set up, doing a lot of this work themselves, not afraid to get their hands dirty, um, and to like to not have this this legacy of racing in 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 generations through the family. Uh, they understood why a component worked the way it worked. They knew race cars. They did. Like. They really did. Right. And Billy ends up getting a opportunity to race for Rusty Wallace, and one of the best looking race cars I think I've I've seen in a long time. Uh, had flames on yeah. it, number six six. Duraflame. That's right. Yeah. Good looking race cars. Yeah. Painted yeah. side skirts. One yeah. of the first cars out there was just painted side side skirts on it. Yeah. Really good looking, and it, run good. 
I remember a race at Vegas. Billy had more talent. <clears throat> Billy was Billy was super super talented. Rusty was a great driver. Rusty was not a good owner. Yeah. Uh, if we just start up a team and you got a rookie driver, you don't really need a rookie crew chief. Yeah. And he brought a crew chief up who had no experience at all uh, with Infinity type cars. He yeah. was a late model crew chief. Yeah. And there Billy comes out of a late model car and puts some on. It was just. Well, I remember them having some good good moments uh, las vegas was yeah, awesome. vegas was awesome yeah, yeah, and, yeah. if they had had a good pit stop he could have won vegas i, agree. I mean it, it was really really a good race for him yeah but after that it, it went kind of downhill, downhill. Yeah. so um the i'm just it's fascinating to me looking back that they had they got the opportunities they had and they were they were again like they were moments where you could see like really this could this could be pretty good um did, did hank Junior and Billy ever uh, share a racetrack together in the Xfinity Series? Because I always remembered, I thought Catfish is. Uh, I remember mm-hmm. that Rusty Wallace announcement, and I didn't, I couldn't remember if it if it was on the tail end or after Hank Junior's deal. But it was did, why, Hank Junior was still they racing. They raced together in Memphis. Uh, uh, both had the Marines for sponsors. Hank ran the fifty three car, and Billy ran number seven car. Okay, and uh, it was pretty cool. That is uh, cool. Yeah, right. And Hank Junior ran really well. Could have won the race. He he got tangled up with uh, uh, your brother. Okay, <laughs> and uh, he was actually leading the race, and and with about twelve to go, and got tangled up with Kerry, and uh, he didn't he didn't fare real well. Yeah. But, it was a good – he ran awesome. Billy ran decent, not not great, but decent. Yeah. So, talk, you uh, – when the racing program ends, right, how does that how does that come to a stop? Well, Hank Jr., Billy, uh, when he wrecked at Chicago, Dr. Petty said that he'll never race again. He said, make it clear. Billy. Billy. I'll never clear him to race again. And then uh, Hank was going to run the one car, and Pinzoil was what his sponsor. Was, what was Billy's uh, – was Billy dealing with concussions? Head trauma. Yep. Head trauma. <clears throat> and, had, and Hank had had some of the same experiences. He did. Yeah. He did, but not nearly as severe. Really? I did not know that. Yeah, Billy was – I didn't know Billy's was that Billy's bad. Billy's got a very, very quick wit. Yeah. And uh, for probably six months after the Chicago wreck, You'd see his wheels were turning, but he never would come up with anything. It was just oh, like yeah. a Rolodex going round and round and round. Oh, it, was, uh, it was scary. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but then Hank Jr., when that whole one car uh, went away, uh, he ended up signing with Roush. And uh, he was going to run the 99 car. Jeff Burton was going over to run for Childress. And uh, Hank was going to run the 99 car. Well, Carl Edwards came out of the truck series, and he was going to run the Bush car. And uh, I'm trying to think who his sponsor was, one of the auto parts company. Uh, they wanted Carl to run the 99. And so that put Hank on the sidelines yeah. because of the sponsor demand. And so he was testing cars and was making a lot of money for what he was doing. And uh, he, he was testing cars for Matt Kenseth and uh, for uh, for Mark Martin for a while and uh, for Bill Elliott. Yeah. And uh, he, he enjoyed it, but uh, it was very demanding. And then uh, they raced Dover. No, not Dover. They raced uh, uh, Pocono. 
and then fly to Nashville to run the bush race. And uh, so Carl Edwards was going to do flying back, and uh, something happened weather-wise, and they couldn't get back. And then Hank wasn't at the racetrack. And so Jack mandated, or I don't say Jack, somebody at Roush Racing mandated that they have to be there for both the Infinity race and the Cup race. And so now he's testing cars Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and he's got to go Friday to the the Infinity race, and then uh, leave there and go to. The, he's never home. Yeah. So he said, "Uh, uh-uh, I'm not doing it." That was it. That's it. That's why he quit. He. he and I'm assuming he had kids by this time, right? He did. Yeah, yeah, he had yeah. kids. He said, and not to offend me, he said, "Dad, I'm not going to do what you did. I'm not, I'm going to be home for my kids, and if I have to live under a bridge and we all have to be in a sleeping bag, I'd rather do that than to live in the Taj Mahal and never be home." Yeah. So after your when you walk away from motorsports and this and this plan to become an owner and all of that, where do you go? I continue to do what I've been doing. I'm fishing, and then Hank Jr. and Billy they they want to start a hunting show. They mm-hmm. don't want to fish; they want to hunt. So we started a hunting show, and we did that for 16 years. Yeah, it was yeah. a great hunting show, by the way. It was. I love <laughs> this. Is where I remember catfish being. You know, you know, as the race car driver, but I didn't know. I didn't get to know billy until the hunting show yeah like and yeah. the yeah. dynamics between the three of y'all are oh, fantastic yeah. he's a nut man he is a nut <laughs> um and 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 you guys produced that all yourself we did yeah yeah yep. so well, I, I had plenty of experience by that time i'd already been in television for 15 years so right you know, i know that was pretty well, easy we're driving <clears throat> we're driving through denver north carolina um and denver's got like this one street uh, big long street, mm-hmm. and we're, but we're driving by this building, and Hank Jr. goes, "You see that little strip mall right there?" And he's like, "Yeah." I was like, "Yeah, I see it." And he goes, "That's where we do all of it in that building right there." Is that right? Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a really non nondescript sort of uh, building on the side of the street, and in, in you know, along with all the strip malls in Denver, North Carolina. I don't know how many square footage it is, but you and. They still y'all still work out of there today. Well, we uh, we moved. I moved my operation down. I live in the big city of Union, South Carolina. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. So yep. we're we're you're down there. Yeah. We sold all that out in the big city of Denver. So and Denver's moved to gone. South Carolina. Denver's gone. So the so you and y'all get into the hunting show. So deer hunting. You know that's kind of where I feel like I connected with Hank Junior the most in in the outdoorsy world. And y'all did take me hunting for my first couple of successful hunts um <laughs> saved your life <laughs> saved my life several times i'm sure um <clears throat> oh and, and by the way not to interrupt you but like probably the funniest thing that's ever been said on this show was when you and hank jr were talking about the uh I th- were y'all either y'all were hunting quail or something where you got the yes. feather oh, oh my god i laughed so hard at that story that is one of the classic <laughs> moments where you shot that shot that thing and just rained feathers all over your dad uh, <laughs> i heard that story from both Hank Jr. Yeah. and Big E. So Hank, G- so I was, I was a little bit. I would love to hear Dad's side of it. I was annoyed because we going hunting. Dad's like, Dad's like, hey, you know, it's a Remington deal. I had to go. He had to go. It wasn't like it was a son. I'm gonna take you hunting. It was a, it was a sponsor deal. But when we get there and we're splitting up, they're gonna break us into ha- you know uh, two halves. There's about eight of us, I guess. We're gonna go four per field. He's like, you're going to go with the sponsors. You're going to go with this guy in a suit. 
and I'm I'm going to go with Hank. And I'm like, well, what the hell is this? <laughs> I wasn't too happy, right? But And so we were off hunting two different spots and then eventually kind of came together to go, oh, okay, how'd y'all do? How'd y'all do? And it's right in the middle we're having that sort of conversation. One of them took off, and I was like, <laughs> And Dad's like, I thought you're supposed to shoot it. I wasn't. I was trying to beat Dad to to to. to <laughs> I thought to, you're supposed to shoot it. Yeah, and I'm like, I'm gonna be the one that kills this one. Yeah, I was gonna shoot it for anybody else, but none of them ever rent. None of them ever lifted their guns up. And I was like, you know, there's safety he was courses not that have been inspired by a bunch of stories. I mean, whether it's loading loading a gun or where you aim a gun when people are, you're hunting in groups, you know that there's been inspirations done just from these hunts, right? <laughs> oh man. <laughs> Biggie's all about safety, and he's all about being following his instruction. He yes. is the leader in this thing. If his gun didn't go up, your gun should have never went up. That yeah. should have been enough right yes. there. Right oh, man. <laughs> That's <laughs> where me and him butted heads. Oh, man. I imagine. <laughs> you know, let, let me tell you something about your dad. He was, he was hard. He grew up hard. He didn't have an education, and he was embarrassed by that, and he never would talk about that, but he was the smartest individual I've ever known, smartest businessman I've ever known. He and Hank Jones pioneered the souvenir business that NASCAR has today. They built a foundation. Earnhardt was a brilliant, brilliant, your dad was a brilliant man, smartest man I've ever known. It's crazy. He was very private, very, very private. It was a rare occasion that uh, he would open up and you really see who he is. He got the intimidator because he he was an introvert. He was never comfortable carrying on a conversation for a long period of time. And uh, so he got some bad raps about being short with his temper and his demeanor, but it was undeserving. They, people didn't know him. He opened up to me at my farm one day. Just he and I, we'd been hunting all day long, and I'd talked to Hank Jr. on the phone. That's back in the hard line days. We had, we had no cell phone, and I, I talked to Hank Jr. on the phone. And uh, when I got off the phone, your dad looked at me, and he said, I don't know how to love my kid like you love your kid. And I said, well, we're different, Dale. We're different. You love him just as much as I love Hank Jr. You just don't know how to express it. And he said, well, you know, I'm in broken marriages and I'm not married to the mom and it's hard. I said, you just have to let go. You are who you are. And I know how much you love your kids. You just have a hard time expressing it. And he never was able to express to you how much he loved you. He never was able. And you always felt like he loved you when you won and he didn't when you didn't win. Right. And I could tell that. And I've always wanted somehow to get you and just grab hold of your shoulders and tell you how hurt he was that he did not know how to express his love to you. And, and he teared up. And for Big E, the intimidator, just he and I sitting in the living room, to share that with me, showed me how much how tight we were at heart as friends yeah but it also showed me a side of him that was sad because he really wanted to have the same relationship that i'm outgoing i'm free to talk and 
and I'm not intimidated to say I love you. All that didn't fit his demeanor, mm -hmm. but it was in his heart. And he expressed to me that day, he said, I don't know how to love my kids like you love your kids. I said, oh, you love them just as much. You just don't know how to express it. Dang. And that, that was heartfelt. <clears throat> I'd have loved to have heard, uh, heard that story a, mil uh, a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> he hey, he yeah. loved you. Let me tell you, we were in a tent in New Mexico, in Silver City, New Mexico. And I, we talking racing, talking about Hank Jr.'s opportunities. You were running to Bud Carr. And he looked at me and he said, that's the dumbest thing I ever did in my life, is getting that boy that Bud sponsor. He said, I should have went with Burger King. <laughs> he said, that has not been good for him. Oh, man. That's not been good for him. I said, well, it looks to me like he's doing pretty good. He said, that ain't what I'm talking about. I mean, what I'm talking about. He said, I don't have him in the environment I'd like to have him in. Dang. That was your dad. Yeah. And he had a heart, and yeah. he loved his kids. He just didn't know how to express it. Hmm. Wow. I, um, you know, I've watched uh, a couple of your uh, videos, uh, something you did, I guess, in the last couple of years where you um, genuinely have a, you know, thought about dad and um, – I mean, I knew y'all were close. I knew y'all were so similar, you know. I mean, even just your looks um, when you stood next to each other, it was it was it was interesting how comparable y'all were. <clears throat> your sons born two days apart, and both juniors, and um, I felt a real uh, in instant connection to Hank Junior. That um, that we would just be buddies no matter what, right? Um, but I saw this video a couple years ago, uh, or I saw it just recently, but I think you've made it in the last two years where you got really, you know, you're standing at this tree stand at, that was dad's favorite stand. And you're talking about how that the that you had no one ever had hunted that since, right? And that stand, stand's been there. And there was a <clears> – <throat> I knew y'all were close. I knew y'all were – I. I knew y'all had had conversations. I knew that you knew dad and had moments with him that uh, that not many people would be able to experience. He would open up to you and and literally count on one hand the other people he would ever have those type of conversations with. And so um, it's really fun to hear some of those conversations. Um, you know, I'd ask you, there's a million things I'd ask him if I could. Um, but um, this is as good as it gets for me these days is to hear from people like you but listening to you talk about that tree stand and how much you love dad and how important he was to you even all of all these years later you still remember the value in that relationship y'all had it's as valuable to you today as it was when you when it was when it when it was here you know um, we tend to forget when you get older, you realize how important people are in your life and all the trophies they tarnish, the money's gone. And what you have is way more valuable than the trophies or the money is the memories of the people that you encountered. And your dad impacted my life in such a big way. He was bigger than life uh, as a personality, but as a real person that a lot of people never knew. I knew a lot about him that a lot of people never, ever knew. And he was a cool guy. 
he was a cool, cool guy. Yeah. And, and he was different than what people perceive him to be because his reputation was so powerful and so big that you tend to overlook who the guy was that was in that uniform. Yeah. And, and he, he was a different guy than what a lot of people. And to me, the, the most important thing in life is Jesus Christ. That is by far the most important thing. Your dad was an intimidator in a lot of ways. And I've talked to him and shared my testimony and my relationship with Jesus. But I never really buttonholed him. I'd ask him from time to time. And the last trip we made together, Donnie Reeves was with us and his uh, his diabetes, he's, he's a diabetic, his medicine was on the wing of, that, of your dad's airplane and his Bible. And uh, so I was getting in the plane. He said, watch out, don't kick that. That's precious. I said, what's precious, the Bible or the medicine? And he looked at me and he said, both. <laughs> and I got on the airplane. And so... Dennis Fisher, who he brought over from California, built our engines, and I'm, I'm not long after your dad died. I'm sitting in a chair at dinner, Dennis Fisher, and he said, boy, we miss our buddy, don't we? I said, Dennis, I can't tell you how much I miss him. I cannot tell you. I, I had no idea the emotions that down inside of me on how much I love Dale Earnhardt. And I said, I, I miss him. I said, but I don't know about Dale. I never buttonholed him. I never had him, Dale, tell me when you got saved. Tell me if you're saved. I never did that. And Dennis Fisher said, well, I want to put your mind at ease. He said, he was sitting in the chair you're sitting in. I'm sitting right here where I'm sitting. And I said, Dale, what's going to happen to you if they scrape you up off the wall? Where are you going to spend eternity? And he said, Dennis, I'm going to heaven. And he said, Dale, why in the world would you go to heaven? And he said, because I asked Jesus Christ to be my Savior. And I believe that's true, and I believe Dale Earnhardt's in heaven, and I believe I'm going to sit around with him around the big campfire, <laughs> and we're going to have stories for the rest of our lives. Yeah, yeah. No, I believe that too. Um, you know, I've I've, uh, I've never uh, – I never really uh, obviously didn't have these kind of conversations with Dad um, <clears throat> that you did or that Dennis did. Um but I always felt like dad had, um, you know, that was important to dad, you know, his relationship with, with the Lord and, and our, um, dedication to that. I mean, those things he, he, and he incorporated, incorporated that into his kids' lives. That was important for him that they understood, uh, that relationship and, um, but I, I that I feel pretty good about that myself. Um, that that I'll see him again. You know, I always people deal with loss differently. People deal with that however they got to deal with it. I really don't send you know give people advice on that. But you pick what you want to pick, right? What you want to believe. Um, but I think you know that I'll see him. I never really. I spent a little bit of time missing him certainly there are days when even yesterday we were sitting here talking about something and I was like man I'd love to ask him about this um, but I just know that I don't sit I don't have this I don't have this feeling in the back of my heart that there's there's I don't have this sort of constant missing man, I miss him I miss him I miss him because I know I'll see him I just know it I know that I'll see him. I know he knows where I'm at. I know he knows what I'm doing. I know he knows we're sitting right here doing this. 
and I'll see him again, you know. And I hope that I remember all the things that I need to ask him. Oh, you will. <laughs> you will. It'll be good time. Yeah. Yeah. But you won't ask if you'll listen. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be listening. He'll yeah. be there. Yeah. He's going to be in charge. Tra- oh, he's going to be in charge. <laughs> uh, uh, there, no doubt. He is in charge. He'd tell everybody where you go. Sleep Mike Collier was his pilot. And we go on that elk hunts or where we're going. Is to put Parker in that tent, put him right there, put so and so right here, put the campfire right there. No, don't put the campfire there. Smoke will get in the tent. Put it right there. Yeah. You know I mean? He's going. Every detail. You know, I remember what it was you were thinking about, and this would be fun to actually ask Hank about. And that is, we were always, you were curious about like his business sense of buying the boats, Boat. the yeah. boats, his, you know, Sunday money. Yeah. And, and, um, I mean, you can go ahead and yeah. ask it. Yeah. Well, I, I always wondered, he was, a, you, as you say, he was very smart with his money and smart with business, but, owning a yacht doesn't seem like a very smart business move right and it's i've done some research on the on the cost of running and maintaining a yacht yearly annually it's ridiculous like it makes no sense it's one of the one things that i w- that that dad did that didn't fit everything else he did in a in a in a financial way and i would love to ask him like why was that was that just one of them things where you're like okay i'm just going to that this isn't going to make sense financially, but this is what I want to do. I'm assuming that's probably the answer, because you know, like you like you say, everything else he did made really good sense, and he always and he never made real bad decisions in financial money, you know, money decisions and investments. But with a with a yacht, there's no way you can make <laughs> sense. Well, of that. He didn't have enough time. <laughs> had he had the time, somehow that was going to tie into a profitable. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how. Right. You think about an airplane. Yeah. You you don't you this throwing money away. Yeah. You buy an airplane. Well, he built Champion Air and made a fortune he off did. of it. Champion Air turned out to be a heck of a deal. Yeah. So Champion Yacht Sunday money would have somehow <laughs> he just ran out of time. Yeah, you might be right. Oh yeah. It, <laughs> it would have been a profitable deal. I don't know how you're hundred percent right. It, it, of like, course. Well, why right. are we even doubting? Of yeah. course there was an answer oh, yeah. somewhere. It would have been an awesome deal. You think, God, how did Dad see that? Man, who would have ever thought the yacht would be a big investment that yeah. paid dividends? Yeah. But it would have. Right? <laughs> Did you ever go on those fishing trips with Dale and like uh, Bill France and and any of the like? Because we hear about those stories. Yeah, right? I hated the saltwater. The best story I oh, ever heard is when they put uh, the five gallon bucket on Hank Jones. Have y'all heard that story? No. Oh, it's crazy. They'd all caught a marlin, but Hank, and it was Hank's turn. You know, they drew straws for who fights the marlin. So Hank had drank some Coronas with some lime, and I think he had a lot more Corona than he did lime. And, uh, <laughs> he was he was pretty ripe, and uh, so they put a bucket on the on the, and uh, they've got the captain in on it. So when you sped up the boat, man, that bucket just about pulled you out of the fighting chair. It was so hard, and, and uh, so <laughs> they would get that, and they'd tell Hank. He said, "He's coming up. He's coming up," and Hank would be really really tired and he'd close his eyes and uh, and uh, of course the bucket was in there and and uh, they'd say oh i saw him i saw him do you see him i saw him boo i saw him boo and it's a bucket <laughs> it was a five gallon bucket <laughs> oh my god but they would say they saw him so hank was too proud to say no i didn't see him you know he'd have his eyes closed yeah i saw him i saw him but keep fighting keep fighting he bought that bucket but i don't he was just drunk and he was so tired when they got it up on the boat and, and he realized it's a bucket. He said, 
I get you, Bo. I get you, Bo. Someday I get you. I get you, Bo. I'll get you Bo. He was so worn out he couldn't even he couldn't even argue with him. That's uh, hilarious. That uh, is funny. That's funny. That reminds me of that that uh, trick that uh, the real tree guys, yeah. Bill Jordan, did on Carrie Earnhardt when they he crept up, the bu- crept up the buck. on that with that buck Bubba and it, deer. And it was it was a it was a decoy. Yeah, yeah. Bubba and buck. He, oh, and, yeah. He, and he put that arrow boy placed that arrow right right <laughs> at the kill shot. And, just, <laughs> and then he's like didn't he move <laughs> that's funny oh that is that's hilarious i put saran wrap over the toilet one time at the we we stayed together <laughs> who's we uh your dad and i oh we stayed in the lower house we had when we had the pilancia there was a uh, there was an upper house and richard and uh tommy teague and and uh mike and maybe two or three other guys would stay in the upper house and your dad and I would stay in the lower house. We was kind of by ourselves. And uh, the bathroom light was a red light. And so you could just see the outline of the toilet. So I went in there and when he went to sleep, I stretched some round wrap over it. He peed so. all over his <laughs> <laughs> Anybody else would have quit. He just sat there and danced all the time. <laughs> he didn't know what was going on. That's hilarious. Uh, it turned out to be a mistake. He got me back. How did he get you back? Oh, I can't tell you that. can't tell that? <laughs> I can't tell that. He got me. He got me good. Must have not have been just the fight in the bucket. You must have done oh, something. No. Must have been, oh, it was worse. It was worse. Damn. That is one thing that I would not want on my conscience is – Dale Earnhardt's going to get me back, and I don't know how. Oh, man. Like, yeah. I would – like, pulling the prank on him and then having to wait and see what he's going to come up with. Holy yeah. smokes. Terrified. We had a – I had a uh, old high-rack truck at the deer lease, and so uh, I, uh, I was coming into camp one night, and uh, I had no idea – your dad was anywhere around and he came up behind me i mean he hit me like a ton of bricks and i had to steer left and drive through a barbed wire fence to keep him turning over because that old truck was top heavy he thought that's hilarious so i've spent the next day fixing fences uh while they all went hunting so the next year we're back and I bought an old van out of Mexico that had a high rack on it and i was going to scrap the van all i wanted was the high rack so donnie reeves and i we were going to go hunt close together, and uh, your dad went further down into the ranch. And so Donnie killed a deer that night. So I got down early and drove over and helped him load that deer in the old van. Well, that old van didn't have any lights. It was just a piece of junk. Wouldn't hardly run. And uh, so we're, we're coming back, and right in that same corner where your dad had hit me uh, the year before, I see the dust coming. And I said, Donnie, you got your seatbelt on? He said, <laughs> no, why? I said, because here comes Earnhardt. He's, oh, my gosh. He buckles up. We get up there, and I'm watching. I can see because the sun, I'm traveling east, and the sun's behind me. And I can see about the time he's going to get me. And then Tommy Teague had a brand-new Suburban, and Dale borrowed it. So when he got real close to where he's going to put the bumper on me, I locked that thing down on a dime. Mm. I mean, he hit me like a ton of bricks, boy. It bent that bumper. Had a winch on the front of it. Bent the bumper in the ground so he couldn't back up and get away from me. So it blew the tires out on that old van. The whole back end was pushed. Golly. So I'm going to turn him over. That's my that's my objective. God. And the, the tires were spinning with inside the rim and I couldn't get enough leverage to turn him over, but I caught the the ladder on the side of that new suburban that just peeled the sheet metal off of it. 
<laughs> and he the only way he could get back to camp is he had to back up because the bumper was sticking in the ground. That's he came hilarious. in there and I'm eating dinner. And he said, Parker, you ain't got a bit of respect for sheet metal. I said, Earnhardt, I'm sitting here in Victory Lane, buddy. I ain't never <laughs> seen you looking at sheet metal in Victory Lane. Oh. <laughs> he got me back. <laughs> yeah, so like, good. So good. Hey, I've got random questions I need to ask, <laughs> yeah. but it has nothing to do with your dad. Go ahead. All right. Number one. The house needs painting. The grass needs mowing. Where's he at? Yeah. My dad would kill me if he didn't. If I did not ask the the origins of the song that carried your show and has been so. Even you cha- you made a hunting version of it for the hunting show. <laughs> yeah. Where did the song a, come from? I had uh, a producer named Bill Landers. Bill's awesome guy. He's passed on, but Bill and I were great friends, and we just starting. He said, "Hey, we need a theme song." I said, okay. He said, I can write the music, but we need to get somebody to write the lyrics. So we're walking in the bathroom at the Charlotte Airport, and I'm standing at the urinal, and uh, I said, you ready? He said, ready for what? I said, the lyrics. I said, the house needs painting and the grass needs mowing. Where is he at? Gone fishing. <laughs> and I wrote it standing there. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> oh, my Charlotte God. Bathroom. <laughs> you got to be kidding. That song, that, that song right there carried me through childhood and everything. <laughs> had no idea it was written at the urinal. I thought, what a genius piece of writing this is. This is, put this right up there with Tim McGraw and everybody yeah, else. This came is, right off the cuff. It took me about three seconds to prepare for it. <laughs> okay, so there you go. Thank you for answering that. Second, we, um, I, I just would love, we never get to talk to somebody that is, uh, you know, a Bassmaster champion, know these tournaments. But, you know, in the last year or so, even people that didn't follow fishing or don't just follow it religiously get introduced to the fact that there's cheating in in fishing because of these two cats up in Ohio. The thing that was really profound about it is we didn't have to follow it to realize for that moment when hearing the reaction of the other fishermen how personal it was. You could feel it. Oh, it was yeah. their soul. Oh, yeah. And so I just have to wonder, like, what was your reaction? And, and is cheating – we love talking about it in NASCAR. We think you've got to talk about it. I mean, what makes you good. But, like, is cheating part of fishing? Not at all. Not, no. That was a walleye event. Walleye, for whatever reason, they're not very hardy fish, and they're not very durable. And so when you catch them put them in the live well, 90% of them are going to die. Uh, so oh. when you have a weigh-in, ninety percent of the time they're 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 deceased. Uh, in bass fishing, you get tremendous penalties for having a dead fish. Uh, so you rarely ever see a dead fish. If there's fifteen hundred fish weighed in a tournament, there may be two dead fish. Oh, uh, and it's vice versa in a uh, in a walleye event. So it's a whole lot easier to stuff lead down a dead fish than it is a live fish. And if you stuff lead down a, a live fish, he's probably going to die. Mm-hmm. So it, it's uh, you're really under scrutiny when you bring in a dead fish. I mean, yeah. they're going to feel that fish. They're going to examine that fish. They may even x-ray that fish. Uh, it, it's going to be a lot of scrutiny, especially if it's a big fish or has a lot of weight to it. Yeah. So, And the rules were with Ray Scott, the founder of Bass, one violation and you're out forever. Oh. You are gone. And uh, No grace. No grace. You're gone. Good, one, right? One rule violation. Now, running a no-wake sign, that would be a little bit different. Uh, you know, a minor infraction that uh, could could occur that wasn't a thought that I'm going to cheat. 
Yeah. But if you put together a plan, okay, I'm going to manipulate this thing and I'm going to intentionally cheat, you're out forever. Mm. Okay, interesting. All right, um, last question I have for you is that I remember back again when Hank Jr. was here and when he was talking about how, you know, it's like, I don't know if you know my dad, but he just, he ain't afraid of anything. And so he would talk about how you would have a rag that, like when you guys were, <laughs> when the when the bell sounded on it to start a fishing tournament, that, that however fast that boat can go, you will run it that fast and more and that you would bite on a rag to keep from biting your tongue, I guess, or whatever. The, the, Is that true? The rag story where we, we were we fished uh, in the St. Lawrence Seaway and we took off out of Clayton, New York, and I went into uh, Lake Ontario and you cross Lake Ontario and you get in six-foot waves. I mean, and we're in a 18-foot bass boat and you can't see anything but water. And sometimes when they fall off of those waves, I mean, it is like falling off of a building. Yep. So I fished in the Black River on the other side of Lake Ontario. Now I got to come back for the weigh-in, and uh, I had a partner, and so I pulled to the mouth of uh, the Black River to go out in Lake Ontario, and a few of the other competitors were just there. If you don't go by boat, you don't get to weigh in, so you're disqualified. Okay, you got to go back. So I had a couple of the competitors come up to me and pull up in their boat, and they said, "What are you doing?" I said. Going to the weigh-in, they said you won't make it. We've already been out there. It is horrible. You will not make it. And I'm telling them, shut up. I got a partner sitting over here who's petrified, you know. <laughs> and so um, I said, we're okay. I'm, I said, okay, guys, that's all right. I said, I'm going to the weigh-in. And finally, uh, Ken Cook, one of my buddies who's passed on, Ken said, uh, if you go across that lake, you're gonna die. And I looked at him. I said, Ken, I'd rather die trying than I had forfeit. And uh, so I handed my partner uh, a washcloth, and I said, stick this in your mouth. And he said, what's that for? I said, it'll keep knocking your teeth out when we fall off these waves. Yeah. So that's why the washcloth, you put it in your mouth, and when you fall down off those waves, you won't knock your teeth out. So that's we amazing. Made <laughs> we made it. Was it close? <laughs> it was scary, it's man. Scary. There was times I would have probably bailed out. I mean, it was really, really scary. So when we got back to the river, I was soaking wet. I tore my depth finders off the boat from all the pounding troll motor was ripped off. And we got back into the river where we were safe. And I said, that's about as scared as I've ever been in my life. He said, oh, it's the scariest moment of my life. I said, when we crossed that point there at Reed Bay, that's when it was the scariest. He said, no, the scariest was the look on your face when you told that man you'd rather die. <laughs> <laughs> he said, because I didn't feel that way. <laughs> I wasn't ready. No. <laughs> what a great story. Oh, wow. What, so, a, what a pleasure. So, Hank, what are you up to these days? We're still doing uh, fishing television. I got a YouTube show. Yep. And uh, we're trying to branch out more into social media. It's, uh, uh, the whole television world right now is uh, is a moving target where it's going to land, how it's all going to work out, you know. Yep. And, um, I'm looking at NASCAR over there on 105 on USA. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at uh, uh, streaming this, streaming that, and um, – Cable networks are dying, and it, it is just an amazing time that uh, ha has me scrambling. So I don't really know what the future holds, you know. People say, well, won't you just retire? Well, I'm kind of like Roger Miller, you know, the old country music singer. Roger Miller retired, and they asked him, I said, Roger, why did you retire? And he said, well, I made enough money to last me the rest of my life. Uh, providing I buy nothing big and uh, die by Friday. 
<laughs> so I need to keep working, and I got to figure out how to do that because it, it is crazy times. We we've uh, we've committed for one more year of linear television. So where we go after that, I'm not sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. not sure. The um, what are the what are the big uh, outdoor channels? What are their? What do you think that their move is? You know, they're 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 avails. Uh, let's take the outdoor channel for example, which was the leader. Their availability to homes was about forty-four million, and they're down to about eighteen million. Yeah, they're half, and so who knows where that's going to land up? And I tell people, a lot of the budget that I've drawn off of for the last forty years, guys with mohawk haircuts that are painted painted green that turn a double back flip and over sensationalize everything about the outdoors, they're they're getting four million followers, and every time they post something, they get eighty thousand likes. And yeah. I don't know where that's going to go. That I just don't see that lasting. You know, they don't have any knowledge on why this fishing rod performs the way it does, and they don't know any of that stuff. And yet, they're the influencers on uh, on all this product. So, yeah. where is that going to land? I don't know. Yeah. It's crazy. Well, so, do you still enjoy it? Do you still I do. enjoy creating? Yeah. And, I, and I like a challenge. I do. I, I like I like a challenge. Yeah. So I got one, and, and <laughs> we'll see how it works out. How much? How often do you still get to work with Hank Jr., Billy, and them? I talk to Hank Jr. and Billy probably uh, two or three times a week. Yep. Uh, his, uh, his two boys, Boone and Cade, are hooked on fishing, so they think I walk on water. Yeah, and, that's nice. Uh, I go up and fish with them as often. They got a new boat uh, two weeks ago. Really? And uh, they're all fired up. So yeah. I've been up there. And now How old are they now? Uh, Cade is 12 and Boone is 17. See, that's, that's amazing. That's why I asked because I still look at – I know Hank I know. Jr. when he started having kids. I mean, I still just look at him as like two, three, four yeah. years old just getting started. But, no, they're teenagers now. Yeah. Yeah. And they got a boat. That's awesome. And Billy – I was looking at land and stuff down in South Carolina, and I think he's in realty, isn't he? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's doing commercial real estate, and yeah. uh, he just got his own franchise uh, for national land and realty, and uh, he's got the state's full area all the way up into Virginia. He just got his broker's license in Virginia. That's awesome. And so he's he's doing really well. He likes that. And Ben and Lucy? Ben is selling building material. He sells these high-end uh, uh, summer porches and doing good. And uh, Lucy is uh, uh, doing uh, weddings, photography, and all kinds of photography, and she enjoys that. Awesome. And then uh, my youngest son, Timmy, Timothy, yeah. he just got a little boy and uh, just turned a year old. So I did, the, I, yeah, mild-mannered kid I had, and he ended up fighting MMA. Right. <laughs> how long did that happen? Oh, I don't know how it happened. <laughs> how long did he do it? for about three years, yeah. four years. Yeah. Wow. Jeffrey rest, got in one of them matches <laughs> one time, and I'm like, what? Are you thinking? Yeah. It is the craziest thing. I went to one. Yeah. Well, his dad did go race in the Bush Series at Rockingham. So <laughs> after being a Bassmasters <laughs> champion, decided to go racing. Oh, that so would have been a good race. I think you set a pretty good example for them. To just, <laughs> anything goes, right? Whatever you want to do in life. <laughs>
That's right. <laughs> I wish I could deny it, but I guess you can't. I can't. No. Uh, <laughs> These stories, uh, uh, that, no, he's right about that. If you can dream it. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, Forrest Wood used to say, and Forrest Wood's the founder of Ranger Boats, and Forrest Wood was my hero. Forrest used to say, and he and your dad were great friends. Forrest used to say, it's no use to dream if you're not going to work. Yeah. It's no use to work if you're not going to dream. And I you put you. those together, so, hey, yeah. go for it, man. <laughs> if you want to work at it, dream on. That's right. That's good advice. Well, Hank, thanks for coming today. Good to see this you, my This has been buddy. a heck of a conversation, yeah. everything I hoped it'd be. Your dad would be so proud of you. Well, I appreciate you saying that, and I believe uh, I can take that to the bank coming from you, yes, buddy. Yes, sir. All right. Hank Parker Sr. on the Dale Jr. Download. Man, I'm really excited to have Ally help us bring the guest segment every week. It's one of my favorite parts of the download. We get to talk to so many different people in racing, outside of racing. But everybody that comes in here, I want them to have had a good time. I want them to want to come back. I want them to feel like an ally to Dirty Mo Media. Thank you, Ally, for your continued support of the download and the entire Dirty Mo Media team. Check out Dirty Mo Media on Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, and Instagram. <laughs>